So this evening I'd like to reflect on the theme of renunciation. And in doing so, hopefully make it seem like a theme that has something to do with us. And in this talk, I'd like to draw a little bit on some contemporary poetry, but I'd like to draw even more on some of the Chan poetry from China from the 10th and 11th century that revolves around this theme of renunciation. But I'd like to begin with a poem, by, or part of a poem, by Mary Oliver. She said, Every year, everything I have ever learned in my lifetime leads back to this, the fires and the black river of loss, whose other side is salvation, whose meaning none of us will ever know. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things, to love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it, and when the time comes, to let it go, to let it go. So this evening I'd like to reflect on both the practice and the fruition of the path of renunciation. And to really explore a little bit what renunciation even means in our lives as lay people in a secular, pretty secular culture where many people don't feel particularly affiliated with any particular religious belief system. But the first thing I'd like to invite you to do is to naturalize this word, renunciation. I mean, I, how often do you use this word in your ordinary language? Never? <laughs> I mean, it's not a word that's much used in English, is it? Renunciation. And for many people, it has this, these really terrible associations, you know, that renunciation means being deprived of something or is associated with a kind of misery or bleakness or, uh, you know, a kind of austerity that has really very little appeal, to put it bluntly. But I think it is actually quite a very, I find it a very helpful word to naturalize, to somehow let the word renunciation just sit in your heart and get a sense of what your response is. How do you hear it? How do you relate to it? But to perhaps explore the possibility that this is not only a word, but also very much a principle, an equality that we could indeed learn to befriend, that could become part of our vocabulary. If you really stand back and look at what we're doing here during this week, you know, it's very much the same what we're doing here that people have done 
all around the world for 2,600 years. And the way that it's taught, what we're doing here, is that this is actually a renunciate tradition. It's a renunciate teaching. And mostly what we do when we sit on a cushion or walk on our walking path is that we are really acquainting ourselves with the landscape of renunciation. We are learning the landscape of renunciation. We're learning moment to moment what it means to let go. Now, renunciation unarguably lies at the heart of the path of awakening and freedom. And it's said that in this path, there are really two pillars, two primary pillars, two primary qualities that support and are central to a path of liberation. One of those qualities or pillars is renunciation, and the other pillar or quality is compassion. And that both renunciation and compassion, both of them are responses to suffering, and the ways that our dedication to bringing the end to suffering is manifested. When we, well, we do, we sit, we walk, we live every moment in our lives within the landscape of our own minds, our own hearts, our own bodies, and in relationship to countless other bodies, lives, minds. And as we begin to pay attention, I think we see over and over again the way that suffering and struggle is caused. And when we start to strip away the layers of explanation, of story, of um, belief, I think on the most essential level, we begin to see that to cling to anything at all is to almost immediately begin to suffer and struggle. That to cling to anything at all, to grasp hold of anything at all, is almost like volunteering for suffering. So renunciation is a response of wisdom and compassion. When we look beyond our own personal and immediate experience, and when we look at the world with all of its torment, all of its suffering, all of its division and fear, and when we look around us and see the size of the cloth of pain in our world, I think that we do understand, again, that on the most essential level, the most true response that we can have, the most true response that can make a difference, must be rooted in compassion. And it's almost as if suffering 
has is a parent that has two children. A suffering is the parent when seen clearly of renunciation and compassion. Although from the standpoint of delusion and confusion, suffering is the parent of two different children. One of them is aversion and the other is resistance. I think we very much do need to acknowledge at the outset that the practice of renunciation is not very fashionable, and nor is it considered to be very attractive to most people, even, even when its, its importance as an ideal is admired. You know, we can think, yeah, you know, fantastic, let go of things, you know. Really be a renunciate, you know, wonderful ideal. But when it comes down to the nitty-gritty, it doesn't really look that appealing. But in a way, it is why, that is the very reason why renunciation is given so much importance in this tradition and teaching, because it is seen to be a practice of freedom. And renunciation in this teaching, rather than being presented as something dismal or bleak, it is actually um, described, renunciation is described as a practice of happiness, a practice of joy, and that its fruition is the deepest happiness and joy. Ajahn Chah once said, you know, if you let go a little, you have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you have a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you have complete peace. The fruition of renunciation is a spaciousness of heart that is really at peace with all things. It is also a practice of fearlessness. And its fruition is profound fearlessness. It's a practice of wisdom, aligning ourselves with the way things actually are. And its fruition is unshakable wisdom. It is a practice of peace because renunciation is again and again asking us to lay down the arguments that we have with life, with ourselves, before we win them. It is also a practice of kindness, finding the ways to end all struggle and torment, all harshness and cruelty. And its fruition is liberation and freedom. In fact, in this teaching, liberation and freedom are words that are at times used interchangeably with renunciation. Now, before I go on to explore it, I'd like to look at some of the kind of historical context of the practice of renunciation. The young Prince Siddhartha, living in his very protected, uh, pleasant life, ventured out of his palace and he encountered the realities of aging, of sickness, and of death. And his first response to aging and sickness and death was a sense of disbelief. 
almost estrangement. He would even ask the question, will this also happen to me? His fourth encounter in these ventures out of his palace was to see the sight of a renunciate in the crowd, a wandering monk with a serene, very radiant face. And it was the sight of this renunciate in the crowd that in a very real way rescued Siddhartha from despair and hopelessness. The first three heavenly messengers of aging, sickness, and death almost describe the landscape of unavoidable suffering and difficulty in life. That we age, our bodies do sicken, and we die. The fourth heavenly messenger is a metaphor for the path, the sense of possibility of something other than despair and hopelessness. It's a metaphor for freedom. Now, renunciation 2,600 years ago was a very radical path that people took. In fact, it was a pretty extreme option that 2,600 years ago, it was presented that the only way to live a life of renunciation, a life of freedom, was essentially to to leave the world, to leave your family, your your relationships. In fact, 2,600 years ago when people did this, their families would hold funerals for them, almost as if they had died. It would often be seen as leaving everything that was considered worldly, and the worldly at that time was almost held in disdain, and, and to live a life of poverty and homelessness. And this was the culture of renunciation that Siddhartha drew upon, this movement from home into homelessness. Now, I think it's very important to understand that for many people, in Indian culture at that time, this was a way out. It was a way out of a life that was very often rigidly defined by class and by caste. So your whole life would be determined by the class that you were born into, you know, who you would marry, who you could have social relationships with, the kind of work that you could do. The whole possibility was defined really by the family, the class of your birth. And there was, and there is in any class system, a tremendous amount of rigidity and identity. And people's lives were very much governed by that. So 2,600 years ago, entering the homeless life truly was an avenue of escape, an an avenue of choice, of living a life where uh, something else was possible rather than these culturally and socially dictated roles about who you were going to be and what you could do. This was even more extreme for women than it was for men. 
And there's a lot of poems from a lot of the, you know, early, early monks and, and indeed from the early nuns that describe this <coughs> sense of emancipation they experience. Some of them are quite amusing, but, and please don't take this personally, anybody. <coughs> One woman at this time wrote, Free, I am free by means of the three crooked things, mortar, pestle, and my crooked husband. I am free from birth and death and all that dragged me back. The, this, these two are written from a women's perspective, so you could you know, change the language if you like. At last free, at last I am a woman free, no more tied to the kitchen, stained amidst the stained pots, no more bound to the husband who thought me less than the shade he wove with his hands, no more anger, no more hunger. I sit now in the shade of my own tree, meditating thus, I am happy, I am serene. People at this time who found the ability to break out of these molds of who they were supposed to be, who they were meant to be, were actually very courageous people. And I think renunciation really does ask for remarkable depths of courage because every act of letting go, small and large, takes us into unknown territory. Territory not governed or defined by the endless endeavors to secure our identity and safety. <coughs> and the ways, excuse me, I need to get some water. The ways that we generally endeavor to secure our identity and safety are through the rather futile efforts of clinging, grasping, and becoming. (coughs) I think part of the courage of people at this time in stepping out of the mold is that they're often stepping into really rather a lonely journey. Not always surrounded by applauding uh, crowds, very rarely rewarded with approval. It was a movement, the fearlessness of renunciation is a movement from the known to the unknown, from the familiar to the unfamiliar from clinging to renunciation. Now, I think today, very often, the movement into homelessness is something that's associated with the monastic orders. But when you come on retreat, you really do get a little taste of this movement into homelessness. There are many renunciations that you make simply to come here and to be here. You let go of so many avenues of distraction, avenues that can govern our lives often. Silence is just a small taste 
of letting go of identity. You know, none of us wear name tags, sort of proclaiming our our roles or our status. We let go of the control mechanisms that often order our day. Instead, we have bells. The schedule, simplicity, silence. In a way, these are all kind of like covert mechanisms of renunciation. But centuries ago, the Buddha pointed out that leaving one's home and leaving one's world did not a renunciate make. And any monk or nun will tell you that there can be plenty of clinging, craving and aversion going on beneath the simplicity and the dignity of the robes. Who has the best hut, the finest robes, the better alms food in their bowl, the views and opinions that can be held. Just as we know that despite all our efforts and the letting go that is needed to come on a retreat, sitting on a cushion and walking slowly on our walking path does not entirely a renunciate make. Because we see in the mirrors of silence, in the mirrors of the schedule, how very powerful are the forces of craving and aversion. How very powerful are the habits of clinging and grasping. They can feel almost relentless. You know, do I have the roommate I want, the job I want, you know, the weather I want, you know, the other interview group seems to be having more fun. You know, it can just go on and on and on. And none of this is to be judged or condemned. But I think we begin to see that some of the outer renunciations that we make in being here allow us to be a little bit more intimate with, a little bit more aware of the energy, the energies that create suffering, the energies of aversion and clinging at times feel so impenetrable. And if it's anything at all, Awareness does help us to be more honest with ourselves. Now then, we might feel that because we don't live in a monastery, that the life of renunciation is somehow irrelevant to us. But I think that if we long to be happy, kind, if we long for calmness and peace and freedom, then renunciation in truth has everything to do with us. We might begin to notice that every time that we get entangled in craving or aversion or clinging, two things happen. The first is that we start to do a lot of storytelling. And the second thing, and arguing. And the second thing that happens is that we immediately become unhappy. That we begin to struggle and suffer. And the clue to happiness actually lies in the experience of unhappiness. I hope we understand that. That the clues to calmness actually lie in the experience of agitation. 
I mean, isn't it true that pretty much everything in this life that we feel, experience, touch, taste, care about appears on it, appears with the message written on it to love this deeply, to be present with it, and to let it go. There is a poem that speaks to the second dimension of renunciation, the renunciation of craving and aversion. It comes from a Chan practitioner who says, I gave up my house and set out into homelessness. I gave up my cattle and all that I loved. I gave up desire and hate. My ignorance was thrown out. I pulled out craving along with its root, now I am quenched and still. If only it was so easy. We experience how difficult, how challenging it is to really let go of craving and and aversion. And there's a 6th century practitioner who spoke to the frustration they experienced much like the frustration you can experience, after relinquishing so much and changing so much, yet continuing to find the peace that they longed for so elusive. And this practitioner wrote, I've done everything right and followed the teachings of my teacher. I'm not lazy or proud. Why haven't I found peace? Bathing my feet, I watched the bathwater spill down the slope. I concentrated my mind the way you train a good horse. Then I took a lamp and went into my cell, checked the bed and sat down on it. I took a needle and pushed the wick down. When the lamp went out, my mind was freed. Now, I think frustration is one of the experiences that's often not so much talked about in meditation practice because we can sense, you know, that we can do so much and we we can relate to how hard we often have to work just to, to get here, just to find these precious small times of stillness. And yet still, our minds can rage, can race. Our hearts can feel so uneasy. But each time we can begin to touch this, at each time we can just a little bit begin to let go of craving, begin to let go of aversion, we are inching towards peace. This is the second layer of renunciation. Every time we are able to just a little bit let go of craving and aversion, we're putting out the fire of suffering in that moment. And our heart is freed. And it's so important to experience and to taste that peace and taste of freedom that can come. Each moment there is that putting down. Now, we don't usually have to look very far to find the waves, large and small, of craving, the sense of lack, the sense of things are not good enough, not enough, that we're not good enough, 
the restlessness of need. But each time we follow those urges of craving, it is if we are reaffirming and reinforcing a sense of insufficiency. As if the sufficiency and the freedom of our hearts is determined by conditions. And the great, I think the great teaching of the Buddha is to discover the freedom of heart that is not determined by conditions. Sometimes in the midst of those waves of craving, we can learn to be a little bit still and to let those waves pass as they have arisen and learn to rest in what is and to taste the freedom of letting craving and its underlying sense of insufficiency just to fall away. And most of us don't have to look very far to hear the whispers and shouts of aversion, of judgment, of condemnation, of blame, of intolerance, of impatience, and we suffer so much in aversion. And can we just know those waves? Rather than following the whispers into avoidance or resistance or blame, because every time we do that, we affirm and reinforce fear. Can we learn just to be a little bit still, just to know aversion and to let it go? To care for aversion and to let it go. And each time we do that, We're tasting that sense of courage, of steadfastness, the happiness of stepping out of the fire. It is the taste of freedom that the Buddha says runs throughout the whole of this teaching. It is the happiness and the peace born of letting go. I think our first exposures to renunciation for many people have often been involuntary that we've been exposed to renunciation through death, through our bodies disintegrating or failing us, when we've been separated from someone we've cared for and loved and we mourn their loss. We've been involuntarily exposed to renunciation through the experiences of having our expectations disappointed, the frustration of our desires, We experience, all of us, the effects of impermanence, that some things don't last as long as we want them to. People and events change in ways that we find it very difficult to accept. We don't always get what we want. It's a simple truth. We often don't get what we want. Impermanence. The reality of impermanence is always teaching us about letting go. It's almost as if impermanence and renunciation are married. But involuntary renunciation can often feel like things are taken away from us. You know? And so involuntary renunciation really often does get associated with, you know, letting go gets associated with pain, with fear, with desolation. But if inwardly we are able to move from the positions of craving and aversion and resistance 
into deeply understanding the rhythms of change and impermanence, the rhythms that hold all things, including ourselves. Then, I think, we can begin to move from the pain of involuntary renunciation into a more natural, perhaps a more graceful acceptance and care. Voluntary renunciation is actually the willingness to align our hearts with the way things actually are. To see that to release craving and aversion is to release suffering. It's a timeless truth. It's not easy to live in such a way, but it's much harder on ourselves not to. A Zen teacher was once asked, what is the secret of your happiness? And he answered, it is the complete, unrestricted cooperation with the unavoidable. The complete, unrestricted cooperation with the unavoidable. For most of us, that means life, basically. Because we see that whenever we're in a state of non-cooperation, we're in a state of resistance and argument, we get locked into craving and aversion, into shoulds. And we can be in perpetual, perpetual argument with the unavoidable, arguing with impermanence. Sometimes our arguments are very busy and noisy, mostly inwardly. But can we learn to listen to our arguments? Can we learn to listen to resistance, to blame, to craving and aversion as messengers, even as the fourth heavenly messenger, delivering one simple encouragement to let go? This is not prescription for passivity. For goodness, goodness me, we all know there are realms of injustice that are unacceptable and that we are asked to engage with, that we're asked to dedicate ourselves to their transformation. But I think the engagements with the unacceptable that truly make a difference are rarely born of craving and aversion and blame, but of stillness, of clarity, of courage, of compassion, of being deeply able to see things as they actually are. Letting go does not mean walking away from things that we dislike or fear. That is the shadow side of renunciation. You know, where we just turn our backs on something we can't, don't want to deal with or dislike or fear and say, oh, I'm just letting go. You know, that's just a shadow side of renunciation. Renunciation means staying near, staying present, but it means commitment to the end of suffering, cooling the fires of discontent. There was a 12th century practitioner who wrote, in the Chan tradition wrote, meditating at midnight, meditating at noon, a mind like autumn comes to the way's deep heart, Under motionless waves, fish and dragons freely leap. In the sky without limits, only the moonlight stays. 
So the first dimension of renunciation is disentangling from the busyness, our busyness with the world, which usually means disentangling from the busyness of our own minds. The second dimension of renunciation is concerned with letting go of the agitation of craving and aversion. But the third dimension of renunciation, I think, is the most challenging, perhaps almost the the most liberating. It is the renunciation of self-view. The renunciation of self-view. And all the clinging and pain that is born of self-view. This is deeply the practice of freedom that really leads to unshakable freedom. Perhaps it does become clear to us how much fear and anxiety lies beneath the tendency to cling to things. Just as fear and anxiety leads us to heroically try to ensure the improvement and continuity of ourself. And just as self-view manifests as even more fear and anxiety. Now I know Rob touched on this some last night, but one of the most profound invitations of this path and teaching is to see the emptiness of self-view, not the negation of self, but the emptiness of self-view. And to see how self-view is this amazing phenomena that is shaped and formed by whatever is clung to in the moment. That whatever we cling to in the moment gives substance to the view of I am. You know, if I cling to a pain in the body, I'm the sufferer. You know, if I cling to a plan, I'm the planner. You know, if I cling to a memory, I'm, I'm this. You know, if I cling to an ambition, I'm the striver. You know, it just goes, you know, you've seen it a million times today. You saw it a million times yesterday. The shifting shape of self-view, moment to moment, dependent upon what is clung to. But the Buddha taught, when nothing at all is grasped hold of, there is no view of self. Now this is actually the heart of the teaching of liberation. Because when asked to summarize his teaching, the Buddha said so simply, nothing whatever Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I or mine. Now this understanding has been discovered and celebrated by people just like ourselves over centuries. That this non-clinging is perhaps the most profound definition and description of the homeless life of a noble life. Another Chan practitioner wrote, Above the highest peak of Mountain Way, the round moon is alone, cold and bright, pure and poor. It does not possess a single thing. If someone should come along and ask what this nun is doing, she sits for long hours on her meditation mat, enjoying herself. Enjoying herself. Perhaps when we, when nothing at all is clung to as me or mine, we too can sit for long hours simply enjoying ourselves. Perhaps we begin to see that the degree of 
renunciation we're able to embrace in this life is the degree of happiness and freedom we also enjoy. A self-view, as I mentioned, is a curious creature. You know, sometimes self-view is a very, it's a very long story. It goes back as far as we can remember. You know, I'm sad, I'm fearful, I'm amazing, I'm inadequate. Sometimes the story of self-view has been told to us by other people. You know, you are angry, wonderful, lovable, unlovable. At times, self-view is shaped in the moment by clinging to whatever thought or emotion or event. And here we are again. You know, I'm terrible, I'm wonderful, I'm amazing, I'm lovable, I'm unlovable. You notice how we tend to go around in circles with these things. We can only know for ourselves where we are prone to make our home in a boat shaped and flavored by clinging. But there are some short lists, you know, although, you know, we really honor our uniqueness. You know, quite frankly, the mind carries some pretty universal themes and clinging carries some pretty universal themes, which is why it's so helpful not to take it all too personally. You know, and if we prayed it out a little of these, you know, the short list of self-views, you know, and if anybody, if any of you were willing to come up here and just kind of read out your short list of self-views, you know, you could imagine that everybody else in the room would be appalled, but probably not. Probably everybody sitting there thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that one. Yeah, I, I, I'm useless, you know, I'm worthless, I'm inadequate, I'm right, you know, I'm better, I'm worse, you know. It's not it's pretty, kind of pretty universal, and it's pretty universal. This is the suffering of clinging. We are not letting go of self. We are letting go of self-view. There is the letting go of self-view. And it's fruition. It, essentially, renunciation is a letting go of suffering. It's a letting go of a sense of impossibility. And its fruit is really an unshakable sense of possibility. I'd like to end with just a couple more poems. I was passionate, filled with longing. I searched far and wide. But the day that the truthful one found me, I was at home. Another one. Understand the ordinary mind and realize one is naturally complete. Ask urgently who you were before your father and mother were born. When you have seen through the method that underlies, then the mountain blossoms and flowing streams will rejoice with you. And the last poem I want to read you. Again, it comes from the Chan tradition. All things are too small to hold me. I am so vast. In the infinite, I reach for the uncreated. I have touched it. It undoes me wider than wide. Everything else is too narrow. You know this well. You who are also there. We have just a couple of moments quietly together. <clears throat>
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.